Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Andrew Tapson with me. And Andrew is a CFO to early stage growth companies. Um, so I'm sure we can have a very interesting conversation about that. But welcome to the show, Andrew. Kevin, great to be here. Andrew, tell me a little bit about yourself. How, how, did, all, how did this journey to become a CFO for various companies all start? Well, it's an interesting one. I was always, Kevin, to start, to start with the, we start with the end as, as if there was a plan to get here. It never is, is there? <laughs> well, there was half a plan. And the, the, plan, the plan was set as a, bizarrely as a teenager, where um, surrounded by peers and old boys from my, from my school, there was sort of careers kind of stuff. And we clearly got massively influenced, our peer group, because out of 10 of us, five of us went to be engineers and five went to be accountants, all because of the peer group, the peer group above us kind of thing. Yeah. But there was this kind of idea of becoming an accountant a long, long, long time ago. But I quickly, once I sort of got my brain going on a bit, actually, the real reason for doing it was I wanted to get into business. Business looked like the place to be. Um, I didn't know anything. and It felt like a qualification would be a good thing. Yeah, and then, I think it was much the same for me. And I, I remember there was one, one time I was, I was actually off school sick. And I happened to be wandering around the house, not feeling very good and feeling quite bored. And I picked up a, a copy of the accountancy magazine that, the, that our institute sends out once a month. And I started looking through the, scanning through that and scanning through the jobs adverts in the mm. back. And I saw all of these jobs that seemed to be all about business and seemed to pay a huge amount of money. I thought, yeah, I don't want to be an accountant like my dad and, and be in a little practice, but some of these jobs in the back of here, <laughs> they work in different countries and uh, for, for maybe big organisations might be interesting might give this a shot <laughs> yeah i think you're right i think it was the it was the might be i think it was just it was opening opening up the envelope onto or the window onto a world that i really didn't know much about to be honest so toddled, toddled off to toddled off to university played did all the things you do at university and played far too much sport and all that kind of stuff and then went interviewing and needless to say went to the the big six it was back in those days probably probably had six interviews let's say I got six offers and the, the, the reason for saying all of that was crikey how do you make a decision and it was easy to make a decision because I actually ended up at the now defunct Arthur Anderson for, for two reasons one the people were way more interesting than any other places more, probably even more importantly they paid a hundred pound a year more than everybody else so that sort of uh, that was the that was the extent of the decision making around it back in 19 pounds a year more than everybody else yeah, four thousand nine hundred a year it was. <laughs> yeah, you managed to start a little bit more than me. I think I started at three thousand five hundred a year in uh, BDO Binder Hamlin, who, of course, Binder Hamlin in the UK became part of Arthur Anderson. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so and hopefully neither of us were responsible for for the uh, subsequent demise. Anyway, funnily enough, um, but around that demise, I was working as a European business accountant for ICI, and right next to my office. They were building a gas-fired power station. And uh, guess who was building it? It was Enron. Who <laughs> <laughs> shortly afterwards were responsible for the, the, the great Arthur Anderson decline. Absolutely, absolutely. On that one, I don't know if you know, this was something I looked up the other day just because. And 
I had never realized that post the demise, actually there was a high court, there was a Supreme Court case in the States in the early 2000s that actually exonerated Arthur Anderson. Mm, yeah. If they hadn't actually imploded for the you know, eight years previous, they, they would have survived to tell the tale. Yeah. That's, that is an, I'd never realized that was the case. That is, that is interesting. But, mm. So Arthur Anderson, when yep. next? Arthur Anderson then, um, oh, another, another, another point in history, I think it was 1984, 85, when Big Bang took place in the, in the, in the city of London. Yeah. Um, which meant that basically every accountant worth their salt got out of the profession and got a, got a job in, a, in some kind of banking institution. Um, I, I rather followed the, followed the train and ended up working for, at that point, a subsidiary of Bank of America who had expanded across Europe into, I don't know, 10 countries and unsurprisingly had lost complete control of about seven of them. And they were just looking for bright young things to run around Europe and put out fires. Mm. And that probably set the scene for my for the next 30 years of my career when it was all about finding a problem, trying to work out a, a pragmatic solution and then executing it. Yeah. So spent yeah, the, the, the joy of it and you were talking about you know, the European piece with ICI. You know, fortunately, Bank of America at that time, the offices were in illustrious places like Milan, Paris, Munich, Brussels, Amsterdam, Vienna. It's almost like what wasn't to like. Kind of Not thing. quite. That, that sounds a little bit better than the other factory that we had in ICI Plastics. One of them was on Teesside in, in the UK, which is where my office was. The other one was in Rosenberg, which was in the suburbs of Rotterdam in Holland. So wow. I, I, my, the extent of my travel in those days was a quarterly trip across to Holland. Yeah. And then the other good thing I got was that the, the, the head office of the division I was in was in San Diego and the head head office was, on, was in, in L.A. So, uh, you know, in the joys of and that was that was in the days of the joys of business travel as well. So uh, Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. But after best part of a 20 year consulting career where you end up being away from home probably four nights a week you start realising there's nothing glamorous about business travel. It's just a different office block mm. in a different hotel, in a different place, probably every three months of the project changes. And actually it gets, it's, it hasn't got all of the delights that seem to go with it. No, it doesn't. But I think when you, yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely subscribe to that. But you know, certainly in those early days when you were very excited by the world and travel and all that kind of stuff and meeting different cultures and different kinds of people and just trying to work your way around the world. It was a, it was a definitely a great experience. I think that's part of the, part of the, it was definitely part of the joys of, of traveling for business. And it will be interesting as we come out of this pandemic as to you know, the things that probably you and I probably said in way too many conversations with senior leaders saying, we must do more of this video, video, video conferencing kind of thing. But mm, yeah. the organisations I work for never did. We just travel. Oh, quite. I, I've been talking to clients about remote working, hot desking, things like that for the best part of the last 10 years. Yeah. It's taken a pandemic for it to actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so, um, so the, the, the positive history whizz, whizzing through a bit there from then was ended up as a finance director in, in Paris um, and then... It's worth taking a pause there because that started a bit of a train of things that were to repeat. But Bank of America got hit by the property crisis in, in California. And so our, our peace across Europe was no longer deemed uh, essential. 
And so it had to be closed down slash sold off. So I spent the last two years of my life there looking to sell off parts of, of finance company portfolios to, to third parties or closing them down. That was, that was the first time. Roll forward through the next sort of 20 years quite quickly. Um, I moved on to work for a company called AT&T Capital when AT&T was the largest company on the planet back then. Um, and it was the finance company. The Americans decided to come to Europe to set up a, a finance company because they'd done America. Um, and we built a two billion two billion pound portfolio across Europe, wind forward to 1998, same thing happened. He got bought by some Canadians, closed the thing down. So I spent another 18 months selling, closing down, all that kind of stuff. Moved on one more time to, to ING, the Dutch bank. Um, rather, rather lovely bit of synchronicity with this piece. Um, uh, a colleague who'd worked for me at, at uh, at AT&T, called me up when I was between jobs and said, oh, Andrew, we could, we could do with you with three months to come and help us with phase two of a systems implementation. Are you free? Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll pop round and we'll, we'll have a chat. And I said, yeah, I'll come and do it. I, I left 15 years later as the CEO. Yeah. Having, having been part of the process that took that company, at its, back in the day when I first went there, from a 750 million pound portfolio to a 3 billion pound portfolio, made it the number one in its, uh, in its sector. This is normally me, it's part of the team. Um, put, got, uh, didn't actually do part two of that systems implementation until five years later, because actually there were about seven parts to do beforehand. Um, ended up as the CFO in 2011, and then the last five years as the CEO yet again, to close to close down a finance company, so uh, that one was interesting because I was actually I was clearly I was in charge of the close down at that point, and we took, as I say, three three billion pound portfolio, three hundred and ten employees, loads of other stats as well. Took them all down to zero, but the big, the the big, I call it success, but the thing that I was the proudest of in terms of what we did collectively was. Out of those 310 people over three and a half, four years, we only had two resignations. We, man we managed everybody else out on a voluntary redundancy program, which effectively meant that they left pretty much on their own terms. I mean, it was a combined of our terms and their terms. And it was, you know, it very much was <laughs> based on two shocking experiences of myself, through, which I alluded to earlier. But actually, it proved that you could do it. It could be done by proper planning and proper resource management and working with the humans as humans. Mm. Um, and one of, the th one of the things we put in place of many was to put in a, a, a retraining program. So we, we sort of nicked the training budget and basically said, OK, everybody, there's a, there's a chunk of cash for you. We'll spend it on you. You come to me and tell me what you want to do. And so I unfortunately ends up as a rather stereotypical story, but I had one guy in the finance department who wanted to be a bike mechanic and a lady in the in the customer service department who wanted to be a hairdresser. And we retrained them both. And when they left, that's what they went to do. That and is fantastic. It, and that that really is success. That sending yeah. people out with a nice, here's your lump sum to go away, and here's your new training new job get on with what you really want to do that that's a fantastic way yeah. of doing things yeah but it sounds 
Andrew, though, so there's an awful lot more skills needed in there than you get passing your exams to be an accountant or in a standard finance role. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a that's a that's a fair way of putting it. And I think how do you, how do you how do you pick up the skills? I think that's the sort of the, the second part of the question, isn't it? And it and it's from from my view, it wasn't. You know, I, I didn't end up going on courses as to how to close down companies. I didn't go on courses on how to how to do that piece on that that human piece. It was. And it, come, it was, and it also comes back to what I, you know, what what I talk to my to my founders with now. It's it's heads up management. Mm. It doesn't yeah. matter where you are. For me, it didn't matter where I was in an organisation. I walked around with my head up. I walked around talking to people, and I was I was intensely curious. So, I think in a way, the world has. The world, in terms of dis, sort of changing the the words, which I, I don't I, aren't particularly relevant to me, and I'm also the biggest subscriber that I actually hate job titles, but it's probably because the stuff. It's probably, hate titles. it's probably because of the stuff that I've done. Almost like it didn't. It I it a didn't matter what the job title was, and it didn't need a job title because all I did was run around and do the stuff that needed doing, um, and if. And I used to call it, the, I used to call my real job title, the minister without portfolio, mm. just because I just, I'd go everywhere and talk to everybody. But I think that what I, where I was going with before is like, you know, changing the description, if you like, of a finance director to a CFO, which if nothing else puts it on the same level as you know, the CTO and the CMO and the God knows what else. Mm. Um, it, it's more the point of, Actually, what you're what you're doing is you're looking across the business. You're you're helping all of those people. They're your team. They're your customers, if you like. They're your compadres. You're in it together. And what I saw in those in those larger organisations was the CFO became the focal point, as much as the CEO was the focal point. In the way, you know the way the way I used to the way I I worked for the the, the CEO in, in, in that ING business was very much as a partnership, and very much the case where he could do he had a you know, we had completely different skill sets. He was from a sales background, I clearly wasn't. So anything that was at the simplest level, anything that was salesy, and there was plenty that was salesy in that organisation, he would do and not particularly concern me with but literally everything else the first port of call would be call me and then we'd work out best way of doing it yeah i've seen so many occasions that that really entrepreneurial ceo is out there he's doing deals he's selling stuff and the cfo is kind of walking behind him he's, he's mopping up the damage and trying to work out he's done this deal now how the hell do we actually make that work yeah, and, and in a way, that's to me, that's marginally dangerous when it's when it's the walking behind picking up the pieces. The key, the the way I like I like to describe it, although that's probably not closer to reality. The, the way I like it is you're walking side by side, yeah. so that when the when the CEO for in that example is seeing an issue, an, an issue, they've got their trusted lieutenant right next to them, going, "I'm really not sure about this bit, Mr. CFO." What do, you, what do you think? And you're just getting that slightly different perspective on it. And actually yeah. you end up with a better result rather than just, you know, picking up 
debris off the road. Yes. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's where the, the, you really do have to have a partnership, CEO yeah. and CFO. If you don't have that close partnership, if you're not co-piloting the business, that's when you do lead into the, the picking up the pieces a little bit more. Yeah, you do, you do, and I think sort of leading it on into the into the into startup scale up land, and I I, I do giggle with monotonous regularity at the, at the inevitably back to the titles thing. You know, businesses that have only got five employees or five people in the business, and they've all got a C a C in their in their job title. You know, the the, the CEO, the CTO, the CPO, the CRO, oh, and the CFO kind of thing. It's just like okay, now we've got all these people. Let's make it into not only a part, not only numbers of partnerships, but actually a team. And I think if you go back to the go back to the ING, the, the ING thing, what we had what we had was we had a we had a we had a way scaled down board from the one we'd had when we were running a much bigger the, you know, the growing business. And we and we had four people sitting together who implicitly trusted each other because they yeah. understood the skills and they could see without getting sort of over technical if you, if you drew the venn diagram of the skill sets around the table you could you could see that you could see the connections and the joins and therefore it had a chance of working mm-hmm. and, yeah. I, and i and i often see it in in the in these smaller businesses that that's actually pretty much normally when i get when, I, when they find me or i find them is at the point when they realize they don't realize it this way but you know they realize that their venn diagram's not working or, or it's a three-legged stool where there's only one leg, or whatever analogy one uses. And actually, if it's not balanced, you're let, you're gonna you're just gonna create mayhem. Yeah. And that's when having someone who understands team, understands partnership, um, and has done. As my, I can only speak from my, my personal experience, I, I know how much stuff I have done, and I I know. I know how dangerous I am with all that knowledge, but also what the thing that I'm really good at is knowing when to call another expert in to go, right, that's, you know, that's not my, that's not my skill set. You know, you, we, we were talking a little bit before, before we came on air, we were talking about transfer pricing. Yeah. I know what transfer pricing is, but you're the, I'm the last person you'd want being the expert in it, but I can have a conversation with the transfer pricing expert to turn it into the speak of the business and work out the path to tread because I know enough about it and I know what the language is. Yeah. I, I've always had a view, Andrew, I, I don't know how, how much you would agree with this, that the, the CFO has got to know three things about everything and somebody who knows the detail. Yeah, I think that's a, good, that, that, that's a great way of putting it. I think, you know, sort of it does. It, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a... That, that's a that's a way and, and don't get hung up on the three you know but um yeah. but it uh, the the interesting one i think comparing comparing cfoing in corporate land to cfoing in in a portfolio way that i that, that i do now which is then helping the the, the, the founders on their at, the, at their early stages is actually having that network that really broad network behind you alongside you which wherever you want to position it that at least from my experience, when I was in, you know, when I was in corporate life, I didn't really have a network. I knew people within 
the sector and the sphere that I worked in. It was fine. You know, it was a it was a niche within that part of financial services. So what did I know? You know, if, if you measure it by a LinkedIn book, you know, I had I maybe had fifty people on LinkedIn, kind of thing, which is pretty appalling. You know, now it's you know, it's significantly over a thousand, and they're actually people that I would call on. Because they they know they know something way in way more depth than I do, and we have a we have a very um, strong degree of mutuality in that network that people just chuck stuff at, you know, they chuck it over the fence and go oh could you have a look at this for me, and I do the same the other way because we we all trust each other we know what we've done and we know what we can do and that's what we do to help our to help our founders. Yeah. What what do you think it is that gives that level of trust? Is it just that you've all got the right skills or is it something more about sharing values? Uh, I'd immediately jump to the, sec- the, the second one. Um, and I think the key, the key, the key value with, with this and that's is, is, is the trust piece, but let's, let's, let's spin the other way when I first started doing what I do now and people may be telling me just apocryphal stories, but they were telling stories of, of, of people in the trusted advisor space who'd go and work with a founder. And essentially all they did was go, go nick the idea and then go and, and then take it out into the world as if it was their idea. And that just gives me, every time I tell or hear that story, it makes me shudder because yeah. that's not what this is about for me. This is, this is about helping those generally younger people but there's nothing there's nothing ageist about it they just happen my, my portfolio at the moment tends to be sort of younger than me um helping them on that piece of their journey so that they can get to the this is this is a journey they're going to go that it is going to be step by step and not um formulaic but it will be pretty step by step and i think you know what the role of people like me is to do is to show them the way help them add to their skill sets and to their, probably to their value set. I mean, like if I wound back to the, when I was at that age, I had, I had little, little idea about values and all that kind of stuff. I just was getting on with my job. Yeah. I think that, that that's fairly true. And I don't know, I look back to that sort of age and think, well, probably have about three times the amount of energy that I've got now. And that's what <laughs> I'm seeing typically in, in these founders. Um, they're they're on a journey where they're found founding something it's probably the first time they've ever done this the first time they're going to come up with all of those problems you're there as cfo with a few gray hairs in a useful position of having a portfolio of clients you've seen the problems that each individual ceo is coming up with several times over and therefore you know what to do you've got that bit of stability you bring to the situation to to keep things ticking over yeah, and some of it, some of it is is a reassurance as well to them as a, as a, as the founder that that not only are they on the right path, but you know that they will they will ask me, are you seeing this this kind these kind of problems if you like in in other in in other people in your portfolio? Not that you know, they're not necessarily the direct problem, but it, but it's just like it's, it's always it's some degree of validation that actually the problems that are being yeah. seen and, and they may be unique because of the sector or the or the product or whatever but actually when when i look at it and boil it right down it is a similar problem yeah that's funny it's saying that in in sort of 
the consulting world, every client you go to thinks that somehow they're special and different to everybody else. But no, when you get into it, it's kind of right. So you need we, we need to build you a business case for this big investment or we need to take some cost out of this business or we need to set you up some sort of uh, performance framework. Now, you're, you're dealing with generally the same issues as you do that. You're just adapting. Well, if you if you take the methodology 100%, you're probably only adapt, adapting 10% of it for them. No, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, well, I had an interesting one this week. I took on a new took on a new client this week, and a, it, 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 it was it's a lovely one because they're they're basically uh, inventing engineers. Not they are not in sorry they're not in the process of inventing some engineers. They're engineers who invent. Um, yeah. And they show me their product. I, gen, I, I genuinely couldn't describe it to you because I, you know, pretty much couldn't understand it. But that, but that was the lovely part about it because it shows it doesn't matter what the product is. And I've always subscribed to this view. It's it's that whole mindset and seeing problems in a particular way and being able to manage your way down the river. Um, but one of the questions that the, the, the founder asked me specifically was when you because they're about to get, raise some more money. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know, when you do your when you do your finance projections, do you just have a standard model, or do you build a new one for every client? And it was it was like, well, and the answer was, well, if you looked at the models that I've done for my clients, you'd see the similarities, but they are all different. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the point of it. Is that whole point of adaptation that says you haven't got to reinvent the whole wheel every time, but you have got to invent a part of the wheel. Because it's not about trotting out a, a formula that you can just impose on top of any business. It's more, come, again, coming with that mindset, that curiosity, that level of understanding that says, right, I can take my generic framework and I can, I can put it through a twist and I reckon it'll work yeah. every time. But Andrew, wind it, wind it back for a minute. We had you once again closing down a company that you were CEO of. And we've spent the last 10 minutes talking about your current role of, of being CFO to a portfolio of startups. How did that actually happen? How did you go from that big <laughs> corporate to the portfolio? That's a question, Kevin. Right, so the, the big corporate job came, came to an end because we, 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 we closed the doors and handed back the keys to the landlord. And you gave yourself um, your P45. I gave myself a P45. Um, fortunately, I had somebody who knew how to do P45s, because if I was going to try and do it, it would have gone horribly wrong, wouldn't it? Um, so, yes, I got my P45. Um, and then it was a one of those sort of seminal moments in life of with Mrs. Tapson, where it was like, do I go and do it all again? Hopefully not close something down. Do I stay in corporate life or do I go and do something different? So I guess being us, and you, this may not come as some great surprise, having known me for half an hour, we went, let's go do something else, even though we didn't know what it was. So we moved from London to South Devon, where we didn't, we, we had a couple of friends who lived vaguely in the area, but Devon's quite a big place. Um, I had no job. My wife transferred her job down here. Um, I spent, I spent a year, I spent a year negotiating with the, uh, and working with the uh, the shocking builder who'd built the house that we moved into that was a that was an experience in its own right 
And after that, it was like, okay, I want to, I want to, I want to go back into work, whatever work means. And I'm looking around. There's no, there's nothing really very corporate around where I live, but there's a hell of a lot of small business. No, it's, it's fairly similar up here in the middle of Northumberland. There's, there's nothing very corporate up here either. Well, that was a good, that was a good thing because that didn't even tempt me to go and go back into corporate, whatever that meant. Um, and it was like, and I, yeah, it was just sort of. It was actually talking to someone in the pub um, and that he happened to be a portfolio CFO. His portfolio was only two businesses. I say only only two because I, I wanted more than that. I wanted to be involved with you know, a, a bigger number, even though I didn't know what that meant. And so well, how did it all start? It started by going networking. So starting to talk to people, find out who the people, who were the sort of movers and shakers in the Southwest. Um, how do you get to meet people? How do you get to find small businesses, go to events, all that kind of stuff? Um, and then, and I was reminded of this the other day because the, 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 there's a networking club that I'm a member of. Um, a guy who runs it happens to, be, happens to be a client as well. But that, he reminded me of our first conversation. And he says, nobody knows you and you know nobody at the moment. And his job was to make me known. And uh, you know, and that's worked. So it really, it really has worked. And then the the the, the change into um, the change into specifically into the into the sort of the really early stage stuff came about because of the pandemic, when we moved from a ge- sort of like a geographical restriction. It goes back to that conversation about video conferencing. Um, my my sort of I didn't want to be spending hours and hours in the car driving around Devon and Cornwall trying to you know, go into clients. I, I wanted to that was a waste of my time kind of thing in inverted commas. So it was like okay, I only want to be half an hour, forty minutes from here, um, and that brought the clients that it brought. But with the with you know with with Zoom becoming a big part of our lives, suddenly the world changed and it really opened up into the you know spaces that I hadn't seen before. So I I now have clients in London. Um, and in very deep parts of Cornwall. And the one that I took on this week was in Bristol. So that all just opened up at the, at all, at, all at the same time. And I think, and so the, 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 um, the early stage thing was born really. And I think it was the, the, the absolute realization that the skill sets and the mindset, probably the mindset as much as the skill set was absolutely transferable from, you know, as you say, closing down three billion pound corporate companies to starting up under million pound turnover anything companies. Yeah, but the the, the skill set, I suppose, Andrew, is best summed up by that minister of no no portfolio, isn't it? That kind of you you realize that there are that there are problems you need to sit down and think about them and you need to have a pragmatic way of of sorting them out and it, it if you've got that approach to life i don't think it matters whether you're closing something down or you're starting something up because in many ways you you're you're dealing with a similar fast moving environment yeah you are Kevin you are and i think the thing that again that we touched on a few minutes back is that people piece as well because all businesses, at least the ones I'm, all the ones I've ever worked in for, with or by, are not run by robots. Run with robots. They're run by and with people. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's the 
Now, that's the that's probably the trickiest part of any of those. So it really is finding time to 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 be a to teach yourself. The one skill I would actually put on the table, actually, um, although it's slightly ironic in terms of what we're doing today, is to become a really good listener. Mm, yeah, and I think that that, that can be as, ascribed to most good leaders, but actually. You know, to, to to give advice to 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 people on the on earlier stages of their of their journey is to become you know that's the one I would give um, because it turns so many things into a different perspective or in through a different perspective because you just you just see it differently when you're really listening to those people go back to that story I was telling about about ING you know I spent a lot of my time walking the floors. Just just letting everybody talk, you know, give me their opinion, even though they weren't necessarily going to be implemented, but but some were because you you know you if you ask people to you know if you if, you, if you've ever been in a corporate organisation where they organise an ideas box, God forbid, you know you don't you don't get anything in an ideas box that can ever be implemented, or not in my opinion, but actually if you talk to people, you sit down with them, ask them what they're doing, what's bugging them all that kind of get them to talk to you because it's so easy as a leader of an organization to be the one on broadcast mode. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you've, you've just revealed my biggest secret as a management consultant. <laughs> talk to the client and the client will give you the answer to what needs to be done. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. I remember those days. Crikey. <laughs> 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 no, no, but it's true. It's true. I think it's. Uh... Yeah. So, I suppose a question is that um, a man of your age, Andrew, you're clearly on a, a kind of a second career, having been in corporate and now having the lifestyle switch into Devon and being a portfolio CFO to a number of companies. And clearly you're taking on new clients in that space. Do you see yourself slowing down and retiring in the near future? Or is this the thing that's going to keep you you going for, for a good few years yet? Definitely for a good few years. There's no there's no time scale. I think the time the time scales on that's on it is are you enjoying it? Yeah. And the one of the one of the great buzzes, and you you, you talked about it a little earlier about you know we get to a stage where we whether we feel that we are, but we must be slowing down to a, to a degree or have a, having different perspectives. But actually. The, the great thrill about this is 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 the enjoyment piece. So as long as, as long as I'm enjoying it, then what I can do is I can tweak it. I don't I don't have to be working whatever I'm working at the moment three or four days a week. You know I can work a day a week. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't have to be. A, it's not necessarily a day. It could be a couple of hours every day, kind of thing. So I think what it does is it by the very nature of the beast, it creates longevity. Because you can stay refreshed, you can, you know, you can you can go and walk on the beach, or walk, you know, walk the dog, or play some golf, or see some friends, or whatever. But actually, providing you're servicing the clients, and they're not expect they, they don't they neither want, expect, or need forty hours a week. No, quite. Most of them, you know, my my average is under a day a week for each of my clients. Yeah, and that's plenty. So there's room for a decent number of clients, but also there's plenty of room in there for them to get what they need. 
I guess there are peaks and troughs as well that you you will be doing things around month end for them to pull some figures together and there'll be other times when there's there's relatively little, little demand on your time yeah absolutely and, and that's that that is pro- probably slash possibly one of the greatest challenges in terms of the differential between corporate life where you you, know, you, you rock you rocked up at eight o'clock on a each day of the week and the, you had so much work from, on your to-do list from whenever that you you know you you were never going to run out of work during the day whereas this is this is a this is a very different um way of a working week because you've got as you say you've got you've got existing clients and their peaks and troughs you've got events going on and you're trying to find new clients as well depending on where where, you know what your uh, what your availability is so the, the the there's a lot of there's a lot of time management pieces in there um and i think fortunately for me having spent all those years doing that minister without portfolio kind of stuff managing time managing my time was something that i hadn't probably realized that i was good at doing but i i know that i'm i know now having done this for a few years that it's a skill that i need to because you can't end up with that conflict where you've got you know three three client meetings all landing at the same time that's just absolutely yeah that clearly wouldn't yeah. be a bright idea. Yeah, but I must admit, in the consulting, with my experience, when you when you're working for more than one client at the same time, you're you're either completely relaxed with very little to do, or all three clients have got a deadline that seems to be on the same day. <laughs> yeah, there is a yes. There's definitely there's definitely elements of that, but uh, fortunately, yeah. uh, we've we've survived to tell the tale. Andrew, that has been a fascinating chat. Thank you very, very much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, it's, it, it's been a pleasure. I hope it will be. Uh, hope there might be something useful in there for somebody.